Well, good day. I'm Joel, one of the pastors. It's good to be with you. Uh, last week, we concluded a series called Restore, 1 Corinthians. And this week, we get to jump into a two-week series called One Flesh. I don't know who, who it was. Somebody, if you're online, they yelled out really loud, you guys get a free coffee outside. Free coffee. And if you've never been here before online, everybody gets free coffee. So there you go. Um, a couple of announcements before I jump into that. First announcement. Many of you already know that we're launching a uh, site in Byron Center. Already a lot of people coming. We're going to do a public launch in November. And because of the numbers already stepping in and going, we want to be a part of this. Uh, we're having to launch with two services in November, a public launch there. So remar isn't that cool? It's awesome. People are already being baptized. And it's so cool to go, wait, and they're in like a, a horse trough and they're being baptized. And it's just so fun to see. Um, another thing though that has happened uh, is we now are responsible and have a site just outside of Lansing, Michigan in Holt. Um, and they just had their first, guess what? We've already had a first baptism that they've had in three years. First one in three years they've had, right? Um, and so uh, I'm letting you be aware of this so that you can be praying for that. That's the number one thing that you can do is be praying about what God is doing. Um, one of the things that I'm excited about what God's doing overall, and, and, and as I talk to pastors and churches and leadership teams, different places and in different states, uh, I think there is a greater willingness to go, wait a second. I know we have some secondary issues where we differ, but forget about it. We all believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's go take ground for the kingdom. Amen. Right, And I'm seeing that more and more take place. And so now here's a church, it's over 30,000 square feet, the gym and everything. And they said, here, we want what you, they just, they came and they said, Joel, can you guys do whatever you've done here, there? I said, it's not that easy. Um, God has done anything good that you have seen in this place. And, uh, but God can do his thing and his way in that place. I do believe that because he can redeem churches as well as individuals, because that's how he works, amen? And so we're a part of that as well. Um, and even this week, I, I invite you to pray for Holt, pray for Byron Center. I'm traveling to the Northeast to, to preach at a church in Vermont, Mission City. Some of you heard Tim Owens, the pastor there. That's a sister church of ours in Vermont. And God is working in that in significant ways. Be praying for them as God just keeps working. So wanted to make sure that you were aware of those things. And to also, as, an op as a result of that, I want to say thank you. Thank you for your willingness to continually give faithfully because that's what allows us to do these things. There's no way it's happening in any other manner. The, the, the amount of money that this church gives back to missions that gives to trying to grow the kingdom. We, if you're new here, we don't define growth by the number of people we bring in on a Sunday morning. We define growth by how many people we can send out on mission, how many people can step into community with each other, and how many lost souls come to encounter the saving power, the grace and forgiveness of Christ. That's how we measure growth. How many places can we impact churches so that they grow? We know that the call of God upon this church, we can't do it alone. So if we need to simply step alongside of other ministries and other leaders and other churches and support them so that they see a movement of God, if that benefits the kingdom, that's all we care about because our name will not be remembered, but his name will be worshiped. That's what we get to do. And then lastly, yes, I'm preaching on one flesh, 
And um, I want to address that because this, uh, over about a year and a half ago, God put on my heart some things. And he's like, Joel, you need to do something with one flesh. I just kept thinking, one flesh. That's biblical. You're going to hear about it in a little bit. And I, I see marriages and I see different uh, things that are happening in relationships. And he's like, you got to preach on this. Do something with it. And I've, he never gave me a time. God often answers prayers in a variety of ways, but usually three. Yes, no, or not now. And I heard a not now for a long time. And so then I jumped into 1 Corinthians. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, now it's time. And it's just going to be for a couple of weeks to help guide us. And some of you are thinking, wait, I'm not married. So don't leave just because you're not married. Some of you have never been married. You want to be married. This is, going to, this is going to help give you a template of what you should expect of marriage. For some of you, you are widowed or maybe you're divorced and you're going away. Um, I'm later in life. Like I think about my mom, right? She's watching online, I'm sure. Um, she watches every service. That's how we have large increase of online watches. Um, <laughs> She's like, did you know you preach differently every service? Yes, mom, I know. And she tells me that every Sunday afternoon, but I love you and I cherish you. Um, and so uh, here she is as a widow, and this message is also for her. Because we don't remove from Scripture, we don't add to Scripture. And for some of you who are widowed or divorced or you've walked through the hardship, God is still, God can redeem your brokenness. And he may, want to, he may want to use your brokenness through this message to go and encourage somebody else who's wanting to step away from something that is a covenant relationship with God. He may is wanting to use your experience to help encourage someone else and say, you know what, I've been there and I've even lost that person in my life that I love so much. So please, please, please be open to what God is wanting to teach you today. What God is, how, how God is wanting to shape you today as we speak about this. Now, I wanna, I'm, I'm going to throw out a lot of passages of Scripture. You might want to just scribble them down. If, you're, if you've been coming here a while, you know that I'll probably throw out seven or eight, nine passages today. I, I won't ask that you turn in Scripture to all of them, but I will ask that you write them down. So throughout the week, you can go and have a touch point with it. One of the ones that I'll tell you now that we often speak about uh, in the church today is Proverbs 9.10, which says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all what? Of what? Wisdom. We need wisdom when it comes to our comprehension of marriage. And not just marriage, we want to have biblical godly wisdom when it comes to how we spend our resources, how we spend our time, how we interact with other people and how we deal with colleagues and how we go to school and how we go to work and how we spend our free time and the habits that we have in life, how much time we spend online and how much time we spend golfing and all these different things that come into play. We want wisdom, and I'm praying that we have wisdom when it comes to biblical marriage today. I've tried to define biblical godly wisdom as simply as I can. Here you go. And it's kind of silly how much time I spent trying to, to, to simplify it. Wisdom is living God's way in God's world. That's it. When it comes to marriage, same thing. We want to live God's way, not your way. We want to live God's way in God's world. God's way, God's world. That's what wisdom really is. So in the decisions that we make as a church and as a ministry, even with our lay elders, other people, we, we always want to come back to this and go, well, what does God teach about that? And through the lens of what um, God is already speaking to us about, which we know is eternal, then we go, okay, well, then maybe we should do this or maybe we should do this. And we want the same for our marriages and our relationships. So wisdom is living God's way in God's world, and we want that badly. When it comes to biblical marriage, we have a problem, though. We've lost the depth 
of biblical marriage. We've surrendered the beauty of sacrifice and submission, making marriage often a tax benefit rather than a selfless commitment to one another. Marriage is not a contract to be implemented, but it is a covenant to be lived out with kindness and respect and forgiveness. And we've allowed sexual impurity and sexual immorality, greed and insecurity, adultery and much more pollute the biblical understanding of marriage, what God intends to be a powerful example of truth and grace. The world has hijacked the very thing that was ordained by God. And so now as a result, our homes are living in brokenness rather than in fulfillment and deep, rich unity that is found in Christ. And we're walking around with hearts that have been broken when God wants our lives to be restored. And sometimes the people of the church can be just as bad as the people of the world in terms of needing to demonstrate and show God's design and God's desire for marriage. In fact, the way that we love one another is a picture, the way we love one another is a picture of God's love for us. The way that we love each other as husband and wife is to show the world the love God has for the church. Paul says in Ephesians, he isn't speaking about just husband and wives, but he's thinking about Christ and the church. The forgiveness, the grace, the love in our marriages should be showing God off to the people around us. The way we love each other in our marriages should be showing God off and his grace, his forgiveness to other people because the world would say, well, you should be resenting them for this or you should remain bitter or angry or you should hang this over their head. And God says, no, I want you to know grace and love and kindness and forgiveness and mercy. I want you to understand that I see you for who you can become in Christ and not who you are in your own brokenness. And so we invest in marriages we invest in marriages because we care about the glory of God. Marriage exists for God more than it exists for you. And so we pray to recover God's design for marriage. Here's one way to think about marriage. Something that I've used for years and years and years and th is this idea that if this table represents God and I, of course, am the husband here and then over on this side, you have the wife. The only way you can grow closer together is if you first are individually growing closer to God. There's a graphic here for you to help you see it. Here's God in the center, husband and wife. There's different ways to picture this. I've seen triangles. I've seen everything else. But this is a simple way for me. God is in the center. So for my wife, her name's Melissa, for us to be in a healthy relationship, we both need to be growing toward Christ first. And because we truly believe that, it's easy to hold each other accountable to, hey, did you jump into the word of God today? Right? What I often hear is, hey, what's your time look like? And when my wife says, hey, what's your time look like? She knows that that means, I know that she means that that means outside of sermon preparation. That's a discipline I have to execute to have in my life is to jump into the word outside of sermon prep because I can spend a couple of hours every day on sermon prep. But that's still in many ways work for me, hear me out. And I need to spend time in the word of God alone. 
And so then I look at her because I know that, and because I know that she understands that we can't grow closer together unless we're also individually growing closer to God. I can look at her and say, hey, how's your time? And so I see her discipline of when she wakes up and what she does with that time with the Bible in front of her and seeking God in prayer. We know that this is true, that if God is in the center, the only way we can grow closer together is if we are individually growing closer to God. God's definition of biblical marriage, easiest place to go is Genesis chapter 2, 24. Genesis 2, 24. Genesis 2, 24. You're going to hear it referenced a lot today. I would tell you, in fact, Genesis 2, Matthew 9, Ephesians 5. Genesis 2, Matthew 19, Ephesians 5. Key places that we have to go to when it comes to being in one flesh. Why? Because in Matthew 19 and in Ephesians 5, he goes back and he's, he's quoting from Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore a man shall what? Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. And hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. So just leave it up here. I want us to, let's just all read this entire passage together. Ready, set, go. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. There's so much in that text. I, I mean, right away, and uh, I'm... I'm processing how much trouble I'm going to get in for so many things today. Um, leave his mother. Any of you a mother, raise your hand. Anybody have a, if you have a son, raise your hand. Anybody struggle with the fact that they're going to leave you one day and be joined with somebody else? Anybody struggle? Let's just be honest because you know they're not as cool as you, Right? I mean, I see this is one of the biggest tensions that I see all the time. Well, you got to stay close. Oh, no, no, they're leaving you to go be in one flash with somebody else. Yeah, but I know their meatloaf is not nearly as good as mine. Mm. Yeah, but I see the way they treat you. They don't, mm. they need to learn so much. You need to have your bed made every morning. There are so many problems with just that. And so we adopt this mentality. We just got to keep them close. We got to hold them and they're mine now. And we don't ever let them step away from that. And so now they're, they, they've never really learned one flesh and being joined together with somebody else because you've never released them. And so then when they try to step away, then you grow bitter toward the girl that they brought into their life rather than embracing the fact that no, God has designed it in this way so that we can be a representation of his glory, not your benefit. Should I just call it quits? Because that's a real issue. And we have a problem with it. And we remind our son or our daughter of what their spouse does wrong. Like who folds a towel in half? It goes, you fold it three ways. Amen. Like who just goes and stuffs it? No, no, no. Try fold that bad boy. And so then we remind our spouse or our child's spouse of that they do it wrong. Really? Really? Towels? That's your ammunition? Hey, who unloads a dishwasher top rack first? 
because it's going to spill all the water on the bottom rack. Grow up, people. Somebody say hallelujah. And so then we have all these issues. Literally, you're, you're laughing. Why? Because there's truth in the laughter. Amen. The funniest things always have a, an element of truth. I've literally heard they don't, they don't sweep the floor every day. How do you not sweep the floor every day? It's easy. You don't get the broom out. <laughs> Hello. Therefore, a man shall leave his father, leave his father and mother. That means if you grow up in West Michigan and your children choose not to live in West Michigan, it's okay. Mine better not. I'm just, I'm just kidding. I really am kidding. Partially. I'm kidding. It's hard. Can we just agree? It's hard. <laughs> Friends, biblical marriage. Here's a, here's a definition of it. Biblical marriage grows out of a covenant commitment and results in an intimate relationship. It grows out of a covenant commitment. There's a key word covenant because that's between God. It's not a contract. We can speak about that all day too. Hopefully you've heard about that before. We sign contracts all the time. Hey, I'll give you this service for this service. If you do this for me, I'll do this for you. And we think of marriage as a contract. It's not a contract. It's a covenant before God that shall not be broken. And it results in an intimacy of a relationship that is so much greater than anything we could do without God. So much greater than anything that we could do without God. And the world is trying to pull our marriages apart. Here's a, here's a picture, right? This is a, peer, a picture of biblical marriage. This piece of plywood costs $412. <laughs> this is a picture of what a biblical marriage is. Here, I just want to hold it, and I'm going to, I'm going to read this for you again. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast his wife, there shall become one flesh. And what we're reminded of, that concludes a passage in Genesis chapter 2, 17 through 24, which tells us God's design for marriage. So in Genesis chapter 2, you have God's design for marriage. In Genesis chapter 3, you have sin's destruction of marriage. God's design, sin's destruction. But then fortunately, we're also reminded of the redemption that Christ has for marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. And it tells us that we shall hold fast to one another. That's what that word is. And we know that we find that it's the most popular phrase in the book of Hebrews, hold fast. I love that phrase, to hold fast to our faith, to never let go, to grip it so tightly. And now it's saying that you should, it's a word that's also used in um, together with the word cleave. There's your King James word. And so you hold fast or you cleave to one another. You're joined together intimately. The Hebrew word is the same for both of these in this. And here's what the Hebrew word actually means. It means that you're to be welded together or laminated together so that you become inseparable welded together or laminated. And I think about this, right? We know that this isn't one solid piece of wood. This is numerous pieces of wood that have been compressed together with a, a glue that, not, right? It joins them together so they cannot be separated. If I told somebody, if we just took two two by fours, I should have them out here. We take some nails, tap them together, and I'm gonna say, pull them apart. It's gonna be some work, but you can pull them apart. They can still come do their own thing. 
pull this apart in individual sheets, it's not a hot mess. It's, it's going to be hard. That's going to be really difficult for us to do. Biblical marriage isn't two two-by-fours that have been joined together with a couple of nails. It is this plywood that has been laminated together, that has been glued together, that you cannot separate. And if you do, you have a pile of just debris everywhere. I've never heard anybody say these words. Divorce is easy. Now, no matter your story, God can redeem. Hear me say that. But nobody has ever said divorce is easy. I've never heard kids say it. And it's often the case because we begin marriage, we begin our relationship and thinking that we're two two by fours because we don't know how to not think about us, me. We're so good at thinking of ourselves. Well, this is what I want. This is what I desire. This is what I expect. And so we incorporate that mentality into marriage. And so we're two two by fours rather than this that is joined together, that is well together, that is laminated together, that cannot be easily separated no matter what we do. And so we are to hold fast, to be joined together like this. Every single time for the rest of your life, you see a piece of plywood or anything else like that, I want you to go, that's my marriage. Can't separate us. So I, again, Matthew 19, I told you that's one of the passages. He goes back to Genesis 2, Matthew 19, 4 through 6. He, Jesus answers the people and he says, have you not read that he, that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? There's two sexist friends. Let me just go ahead and adjust that real quick. That's it. You're all what God makes you. You got male and female. It doesn't mean if, and if you're confused about that, you know what that means? It means you're confused about that. And I don't mean that lightly, meaning we love you and we want to help you in that. I'm not saying this like, this is not, nothing, I'm being very serious here. God made them together, male and female, and he said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast, everybody say hold fast, to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, say one flesh. So there are no longer two, but one. You're no longer two, it's no longer Joel and Melissa, it's Jalissa. I don't know. I won't use that joke next time. <laughs> like, but right, it's no longer two, it's one. That's the intention that God has for us. And he says, whatever God has joined together, let not man separate. You don't have the right to separate what God has ordained. Ephesians 5, 31 through 33 says, therefore, man, this is going right back to Genesis. And whenever you have the same passage being quoted this much, even by Christ himself, and then being used by Paul, I go, you better pay attention. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and a mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That's what we understand. The Logos Dictionary of the Bible, this is how it describes one flesh. I'll put this up there for you so you can write it down. As one flesh is a sign or expression of the inseparable union between husband and wife. Everybody say, say inseparable. That's key. Ooh. 
This is not only physical, but it's emotional, it's mental, it's spiritual. It is also used to describe the union between Jesus Christ and the church, which is why I told you previously, when you look at Ephesians chapter five, that's speaking as much about Christ and the church as it is husband and wife. Marriage is the greatest resemblance we should have in our world today of the love and the grace and the forgiveness that Christ has for the bride. But we struggle with this. Why why do we struggle? We have to answer that question first. Why do we struggle so much with the understanding of one flesh? Why do we struggle so much with the the comprehension that this is what our marriage should look like, not the two two two-by-fours that have been nailed together? Why do we struggle so much with it? Um, John Gottman is a guy who has written probably dozens of books. I mean, book after book after book. Um, I don't even know if he's really a believer, but I, I do believe he got some things right, of course. And I look at something that he said about the four predictors he has of divorce. He has four predictors. And I'm, I'm going to, I look at it and I started reading it and I go, I don't think it's just for predict, four predictors of divorce. I think it's four predictors of separation. It's four, four reasons we live in isolation rather in one flesh, right? Uh, Hear it out. And I, I wrote them down for you so you can write these down as well. Um, four predictors of divorce or separation or being two flesh, not one flesh. That's another way I think about it. Is the first one is if you always have criticism. It's one of the greatest ways, the predictors, one of the greatest problems that we have in not being one flesh, laminated, welded together, is that you're highly critical of the other one. You see them for what they have done wrong, and you don't ever acknowledge what they do right. Because you, you think that if you acknowledge too much of what they do right, it makes you feel worse for some reason about yourself. That's called insecurity. Everybody say insecurity. Everybody say, I need to get over myself. No, don't say that. But like, no, we really do, though. And so because we carry this critical spirit. So if you're always, some of you automatically assume your spouse is going to get it wrong. I just want to spend some time with the guys in the room for a moment. You ever been asked to go to the grocery store and they give you a list? I don't know why you're laughing. (laughs) And they call to make sure that you get everything on the list. And then you say, you gave me a list. And then they say, well, I didn't know if you would read it. And does anybody know where I'm going on this? Anybody? May God bless you and keep you. Because sometimes we can even assume the word. And I know that I'm using a small illustration because small illustrations lead to bigger illustrations. Small things are a sign of the bigger things to come, my friends. And some of us automatically assume the worst. We have a critical spirit. You see the faults in your spouse more than you see their strengths. But right now, that's a fun game to play. Like later on today, if you are married, um, go and immediately like write down and say, okay, we're going to time ourselves. Write down the five best things about your spouse and the five things that irritate you the most. And which can you do quickest? Other thing that he says here, we'll go back up with it, is, is one that says criticism. The other one is a defensive nature, a defensive posture. Nothing's ever your fault. Right? It, it's hard for you to say these words. Everybody say, I'm sorry. You know how hard it is for some people to say, I'm sorry? Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't get that one right. 
The, the irony is I respect people who are willing to do that. I give them greater respect. I give them a greater voice in my ear because of that respect that I then give to them of their willingness to, to be humble enough to acknowledge that they didn't get something right. Like it's refreshing in today's world because in today's world, it's like nobody ever gets anything wrong. Yet we're all sinners broken and in need of grace. And so not only are you critical, but you have this defensive nature. Nothing's ever your fault. Well, I wouldn't have got that wrong if you would have told me earlier that we had to go do it. I wouldn't have been late if you would have told me earlier that we had the appointment. I told you yesterday. Well, yeah, but I had stuff I was thinking about yesterday, so I didn't really think about it until today, right? Like, this is what we do. Just say, you know what? I'm sorry, I missed that one. Okay, cool, let's go. We can't do it. Another reason that we uh, have these, these predictors of not only divorce, but predictors of, uh, of separation, predictors of isolation even, is critical defensive nature, stonewalling. That's where you emotionally check out with someone, stonewalling. It's, it's where I was a kid growing up where uh, when I was in school, I got in trouble a lot. And that's when they had paddles that they drilled the holes in. And, right, you know what I'm talking about? Anybody ever had that growing up? young people. Um, I had it. And one of the problems I had is the teacher would always be talking and I'd be looking at the birds fly outside. And then they would say, Joel, you're not paying attention. And so I would repeat word for word, everything they had just said. And they didn't find that amusing. <laughs> well, I would incorporate that into my marriage when I first got married and I, I would be all over the place. And she's like, you're not listening. I'm like, oh yeah, blah, blah, blah. blah and I'd repeat everything. But it was a form of stonewalling, and I just didn't recognize. And so now, even today, when I'm talking to a friend, sometimes I'll have to jump on my phone. If I do, I'm like, I'm taking, I want you to see, I'm just taking notes about what you say, because I don't think there's anything more rude than not looking at somebody in the eyes when they're having a conversation with you, unless you're taking notes about what they're saying. That's a form of stonewalling. And so what it does is it communicates what you're saying to me isn't that important. But if they know I'm actually taking notes on what they're saying, and I've done it with my wife before, I'm like, I'm just taking notes on that. I want to remember this. I need to be thinking about this. You know what that does? That gives her, that person, especially my wife, honor. What you say matters. Fourth reason is contempt. Or fourth predictor is contempt. You're just contemptuous. You speak with harsh tone. You're always condescending. I won't go much deeper than that. So we have all these issues. That's the, that's the problem we have with one flesh is we allow the brokenness and the sin nature to step in and we interpret everything from our lens rather than understanding that we are now one flesh. And so I wanna give you three now, three things that say, hey, one flesh means these three things. And I'll go ahead and call them out for you, leave some space there in your notes, but it means physical intimacy, it means relational intimacy, and it means spiritual intimacy. Three things that we find in scripture that broad topic wise, because this is one Sunday, again, next Sunday, Song of Solomon. Everybody get excited for that. But one flesh means physical intimacy, relational intimacy, and spiritual intimacy. Um, for decades, when I was growing up in the church, there, was, there were some dirty words that you would never say. Sex being one of them. You would never say that word. Ooh. The unwillingness of the church for decades to speak about sex has led to massive problems in marriage about sex. 
we're reaping those dividends today. However you want to think of those dividends. The act of sex is a manifestation of one flesh. And sex is a gift from God, friends. It was God's idea, not ours. And sex is to be a physical expression of the covenant made together in oneness in the context of marriage. It is both for procreation, that's Psalm 139. So it's for procreation to create new. And it's also for recreation, to enjoy. God gave it to us for pleasure. And so we look at it in this form and we go, wow, that's awesome that he would give that to us, right? But Hebrews 13.4 tells us that it, Hebrews 13.4 tells us that it should only be in the form of a one relationship, a covenant before God in marriage. And you're going, why does that have to be? Because we've ripped it out. In my timeline, in my lifespan, we have ripped out that, that uh, we've, we've given up. Honestly, the church has given up. We just automatically assume that you're going to start having sex outside of marriage no matter what. And so then we just tell you, well, do the best you can. No, let's live biblically. You know what sex is like? Sex is like fire. So men, uh, women, like, so are any of you, I'm fascinated with fire. I've got a gas fireplace in my house and I still had to go buy a fire pit because I still need the real fire. I didn't put that in my house. I learned the lesson, but I put it outside and I'll go out there and it'll even be drizzling or whatever. And I'm sitting there watching the fire. My wife's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I just love to watch it. She's like, right. Any, right? Fire is amazing to me. Just to watch it, you keep adding the logs and you get the bed, the, the coals, and then you wrap up, oh, do this, take some Honeycrisp apple with some cinnamon and sugar inside, wrap it in aluminum foil, throw, throw it in the coals for about five minutes, pull that bad boy out, Jesus comes back. <laughs> it's good. I, to me, that's what a fire is. Sex is like a fire. Sex is like a fire because if it's in the restraint of what God intended, it's remarkable. But once you throw it outside of that one covenant, that relationship, it'll spread and it'll burn everything down. Once you allow it through lust and pornography to come in in other ways and it's not within the constraints of, of what God has said, this is what I desire for you to, to share this with one other person in the context of oneness and in the context of marriage. And once you start to incorporate that outside of marriage, you don't even know you're destroying a future relationship. You're hurting a future relationship because you won't restrain yourself now. That and money, biggest reasons. There are so many divorces, so many people struggling in a relationship because for some reason we can't allow ourselves to go before the almighty God and say, God, help me, help me to, to process this frustration I have physically that I know the fulfillment will only last for 20 seconds, but God, help me to do that so that I don't destroy the covenant that you have asked me to walk in. You need, some of us need to get on our knees and beg God to remove the lust and the pornography and the, the sexual relationships that we are currently having outside of marriage so that it can be walking in the oneness of God and what he intends.
And I'm, I'm tired of churches placating to sin. We need to call it out knowing that God can still redeem us from sin. So one flesh means physical, to, physical intimacy. It also means relational intimacy. It's the second thing. Relational intimacy, which is, which is sharing life together. Oh, man. I, I bought my house in Louisville, Kentucky when I was 25 or so, and um, I had just moved to Kentucky. And the, I bought the house the day before I met my future wife. I took her to the house. She goes, oh, this is only a mile from my grandmother and like two miles from my parents. And I go, I just listed it for sale. <laughs> and so then she bought it. No, I'm just kidding. So we, we ended up, of course, we got married a year later after I met her. And um, one of the first things I do before she ever moved in is I finished the basement. What did I want in the basement? A man cave. Praise God. <laughs> That's when I still did all the work myself. And it was fun to take a, a nailing gun and put a nail through your thumb and different things like that I was experimenting with. Um, but I finished that basement and, and it looked good as long as you were at a distance. And I, <laughs> I finished that basement. It was so, I wanted my man cave. Can I, can I, is, it, is it wrong to have a man cave? Nope. No. Can I, but yes, at the same time because we've actually learned to separate our lives from our wives. And you're going, well, that means they, and women don't go, oh, see, you shouldn't have a man cave, we should live together. Well, no, that means they get a say in how you decorate the house. When you make the entire house for you and don't consider them, yeah, they wanna go have a space that's for them. Am I stepping on toes? Take your shoes off, I can step on them better. And, and again, it's not, it's not wrong to have a man cave. It's not wrong to decorate your house in a specific way. But when only one of the individuals has a say about how you're going to do that, so then you have to isolate yourself, it can be a sign of other things in your life in which you're living apart from the other one. And so there's no relational intimacy. And more and more as you go through life, there's less and less time that you spend with one another. That's not what God intends. He wants us to share in eating with one another and in our housing and raising a family and being one flesh so that in all things, even in the stuff of life, we are united. I don't think it's wrong to have some things that only you like to do, but you had better also make sure that you have things that you like to do together in relational intimacy, shared parenting, shared friendships, shared joys and struggles there's no one I would rather hear from about their day than my wife, good or bad. So you have shared values about how you're going to parent. So that means you better figure it out. Don't just have kids and each one of you are left in the lurch going, I thought you were gonna raise them. We always like to ask someone, well, if you, if you have kids and, and you're one flesh, which one disciplines? No, no, we both discipline. She says, go see dad, and I say, you're in trouble. But we're in unity 
on what that discipline is. I said, you know, I, I, recently I said, hey, we need to talk about this. Let me talk to your mom. And then they stood there while they wanted me to talk to their mom. I'm like, no, 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 go away. We'll get on one page together, one flesh, then we'll talk to you. And then they literally said, do you have to? Yeah, we do. We do. And so we want to be in relational intimacy. That's even how we spend our money, right? We give certain money to the church, certain money to other things. And then honestly, over a dollar amount, we, we share with each other. Hey, I'm thinking about buying, literally, it can be a pair of shoes. I'm thinking about buying these shoes. How much are they? Well, I don't think that's the first question that should be asked. I think, do they serve a need? <laughs> and, and, she, and then she asked me other questions. And I, why don't we just talk about it. And she's like, you know, you can buy the shoes if you want to buy the shoes. I'm like, yeah, I'd rather you just know. You're like, well, you don't have to do that, but I'm not serving myself. I'm serving us. We're one flesh, so I'd rather her know. Right? Isn't that a healthier way to be? That's a confident way to be? That's a secure way of living? If you want to hide something, it's because you are being or stepping into a situation afraid of what you're going to be found out as loving. So we need to be in physical intimacy, but also relational intimacy, sharing life together. And again, it doesn't mean that you can't have some hobbies or some activities that just you like to do, but you better have those other activities that you enjoy doing with one another. God did not simply call us to cohabitate he called us to share in life, to be one flesh together. So there's physical intimacy, there's relational intimacy, and then there's also, thirdly, spiritual intimacy. God designed our marriages. God designed marriage to deepen our joy in him. Ephesians 5, once again, reiterates that. That from the beginning, God made husband and wives to be one, one flesh. And they are to be, a, our marriages are to be a breathing reflection of the gospel. Anybody ever heard, if you can't say anything nice, don't say, yeah, don't say anything at all. Husbands and wives, stop speaking negative of your spouse, period. If your girlfriend or your boyfriend comes up and says, man, how are, they, how are you guys doing? Man, can you believe that such and such? He chose to blah, 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 or she chose to stop. Already you're in the wrong. Stop. You're in the wrong. Straight up. Stop. Because you're not going to have spiritual intimacy if you can't trust the other one to see you for who you can become in Christ and not simply who you are already in your brokenness and your despair. And that doesn't help anybody come out of a place of depression, of stress, of anxiety to have their spouse, the one who is to be living in one flesh, speak negative of them to other people. Start edifying them. Start encouraging them. And if you don't know how to pray for them, say these words, God, bless my spouse. May they encounter you today and hear from you your voice. Amen. Let that be that. 
Spiritual intimacy is what God expects for us to have. And again, it's the greatest example that we can have of what Christ does to love the church. We should be a testimony to a watching world of what it is to love one another in our marriages. And we know that in, even in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, that Satan is a roaring lion waiting to devour us. And I think he's waiting to devour our marriages. Because when he can dismantle the marriage, when he can dismantle the family, everything else falls apart. Our understanding of self-worth falls apart. Our understanding of what it is to live in a relationship in which we know we will be shown grace and mercy falls apart. And so one flesh means physical, it means physical intimacy. It means relational intimacy. It means spiritual intimacy. And to live as one flesh, it means it's simple. If you want to live it out day by day, it means you're going to start praying together. Can I challenge all of you to pray together this week outside of mealtime? Grab their hand, just, and I'm going to give you the words. That's what I try to do because I know the majority of, you, majority of you have not done this. Grab your spouse's hand and say, um, God, bless this wife or husband of mine. May they encounter you and hear from you that they are loved and cherished. Amen. That's all it's got to be. And not only am I asking you to pray together, I'm asking that you would then grow together. Read scripture. I know that my discipline is making sure I get in the word every day. My wife gets in the word every day because of, we know that if, unless we're individually growing closer to God, we're not going to grow closer. And I love her too much. I love my wife too much to cheat her from spending time in the word. Yes, I believe that if I choose not to be in an intimate relationship with God outside of sermon prep, there's a difference for me. I have sermon prep time, which is every day, and then I have Joel time for me to jump into the Word every day. Those are different things. I love my wife too much to cheat myself from not living in this. And do not tell me you don't have time because we all know you will make time for whatever is most important to you. I will challenge any of you. You come tell me you don't have time and I will tell you. You tell me about your day. I'll tell you where you can make time and then you have the responsibility of actually doing it. I'll play that game all day. Just give me your phone. You don't have to have it for a day. None of us are that important. If you want to live as one flesh, you're going to pray together. You're going to grow together. You're going to worship together, serve together. And you're going to share in a community together. It means you can't do everything on your own. I don't care if it's hard work or not. Go figure out what the activity is you want to share in doing together. What is it? Listen, I, and make sure that it's shared. I tried for 10 years. I told my wife, she loves playing golf. She still doesn't love playing golf. So we have to figure out what we love doing together. So now I don't even actually care about playing golf. I really don't, because my, my spouse doesn't. God is calling us.
to live in physical intimacy, relational intimacy, spiritual intimacy, to lift each other up. He's calling us to live like this as one flesh bound together by scripture and the word, bound together by the Holy Spirit dwelling in our lives, bound together and knowing that we will always assume the best in the other, bound together by knowing that we will show grace and forgiveness more than hostility or our insecurity because we don't want them to feel too good because that'll make us feel worse about ourselves. What do you need to do to live in one flesh like this, inseparable? And will you take the steps necessary to demonstrate that to a broken world? So Lord, I do come before you and I ask that you would give us your ways to live in your world. Give us wisdom. In our marriage to have spiritual intimacy and relational intimacy and spiritual intimacy with each other. And God, I know that the primary thing that gets in our way is our own insecurity, our own pride. And so may we in humility come before you, come before one another, and recognize that you can redeem. Recognize that you can restore. I know that there are some here, they just want to be in a marriage or some of them have lost someone that they had the one flesh and that person is no longer here. Or they wanted it so bad and they're no longer together. Or some of them are thinking about what they have and they just want to get out. But I know you are a God of second and third and eight and 2,012 chances. You're a God of renewal and redemption. We praise you that we all get to leave this place knowing that you love us. In Christ's name, amen.